Uh, Myron was having lunch with Don, the owner of an electronic manufacturing company. I know some of the people at church might think I'm being unethical, he told Myron, but the stakes were just too high to lose this one. Don went on to explain that he had been forced to bribe a company's purchasing agent to, to land a large contract that he had been working on for months. And he defended his actions by saying, you know, I didn't have much choice. My competition was trying to buy them off to get the, con to get the contrast, so I had to beat their offer. Myron, as a fellow businessman, you know it's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. Later in the meal, Don's tone softened, and he said, you know, sometimes I feel trapped. Trapped between what the Bible says and the way that I'm required to act in order to successfully run my business. Myron, how can you be a good Christian and a good businessman at the same time? Well, in our study of the New Testament letter of James, we have seen him probe and address numerous issues and areas in our lives, such as how to face various trials and temptations, how to manage anger, to eradicate prejudice, to tame our tongues, and resolve conflict. Now, in the latter part of, part of James chapter 4, and I encourage you to turn there, James turns his attention to the, to the business of life, such as how we as believers should manage our time and money. Let's read James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13, and then we'll continue all the way to 5, verse 6. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Wow, James is pretty blunt, isn't he? Let's, uh, let's begin with a quote that James starts with in, in verse 13. And I think he kind of pulls it up for review, maybe a quote of the week. First thing I wondered, is this what James is talking about, this kind of planning by business conversation? Was this common or uncommon? A resource that I often consult 
when I'm looking, are there cultural issues that I need to understand or background? Uh, the, what I usually look up is Craig Keener's IVP Bible background commentary. In this case, just a, a small excerpt from it. He says they're projecting commitments and profits was a normal business practice, even then. Now, traders were not always wealthy, but in James, they were at least seeking wealth. The travel in that day was expensive, meaning fewer people could afford to travel than, than we do today. Most of the wealth lay in the hands of a small group of wealthy landowners, you know, the super rich, we would call them. And there was also a small but wealthy middle class, we would call them, of merchants. Many were local, but some also did some international trade. Now, traders, even if you were a local merchant, you might still think and dream about expanding your business to other cities. So think of verse 13 as kind of coffee shop talk. We're talking business, and uh, they have a business plan to increase their profits, and they think the time and money that they invest, it'll be well worth it. Now, travel plans, market projections, time frames, and profit forecasts, that's the stuff of business ancient and modern. And also, the focus on profit, you know, the bottom line. Every merchant would talk and plan their future like this, whether they were Roman, Jewish, or Christian. And that is precisely the problem James has with it. There is nothing distinctive at all in how they are thinking or planning. Their plans and priorities, same as their neighbors. So James provides both a critique of such planning as well as a constructive solution. He begins his critique in verse 14 by challenging their hidden and misplaced assumptions. You know, our plans often carry an air of certainty and confidence that fail to factor in the many uncertainties of life. Why, James says, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Think for a moment. How often has something happened, even at the last minute, that has totally undermined your well-thought-out plans? It could be an accident. I remember a number of years ago, we were all set to go on our trip down south, and my mother-in-law was suddenly in a car accident the day before. It could be an illness, a flight cancellation, there seem to be many of those these days. A car breakdown, a family crisis, or, of course, as we all know, a pandemic. Hmm. These are reminders that we are not nearly as in control as we often think or assume that we are. Our control is really an illusion of control. And it's not only our schedules that are subject to changes beyond our control, but our very lives. What is your life? James asks. And then he answers his own question with the answer, you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Or like the fog in the bathroom, right? 
take a bath or a shower, and it, it forms on the mirror. But, you know, you just turn the fan on, open the window, and soon that fog just evaporates, right? But I couldn't help but think, James, is that the right metaphor? What about a different metaphor? And I was thinking about, you know, when if you've ever gone past wet cement, you know, and there's always somebody, they want to put their handprint in it, right? Some even write their name beside it. They want to leave their mark. And uh, when it is done in cement, you know, leave a mark. And, and we like to think, James, wouldn't that be more appropriate metaphor for, you know, how we leave our mark on things in life? But James, I think, is right. Because apart from God, we are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I remember when I was studying uh, poetry in first-year university a number of years ago, we did the poem by uh, Percy, uh, what was Percy? Percy Buzz Shelley, uh, his, the poem Osmandius. When he wrote the poem, they were finding, you know, quite a few artifacts in the ancient Near East, like the Sphinx, and unearthed this colossal statue. And in that poem, he is reflecting on, on the inscription, or at least as he imagined what that inscription, something like this. And on this colossal statue, my name is Osmandius, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, in despair. But nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away, covered over, gone. Well, in addition to critiquing our misplaced confidence in our, in our plans and in ourselves, James critiques such plans also for their misplaced focus. Not only the foundation is wrong, but the focus is wrong. You boast, he says, in your arrogant schemes. They are focused on making money. Is making money wrong? Well, now, James is not, I think, arguing against people earning a living. All business, every business needs to be profitable, right? Otherwise, it's not sustainable. We know from many verses in Scripture that God works. Uh, Psalm 104, you should read that sometime. It's a hymn to God the worker. All the different work that God does to sustain the world. And God also gave us good, meaningful work to do. Right from the beginning, in the garden, before the fall, he put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it and to till it. In Ephesians, in the New Testament, in Ephesians 4, 28, Paul reminds the church that the Christian way of life is to work, he says, doing something useful with our own hands. And he will go on, there's at least two good things about it. We provide for ourselves, but also, he says, that we may provide for others. Now, there is a difference, though, between being profitable and making profit as our highest goal. Profit is good, but it is not an ultimate good. Sometimes God's will for us is actually to do something that will be financially unprofitable, but spiritually or relationally profitable for ourselves or for others. Maybe it's sacrificing a great career or salary for a great ministry 
or for a family because the the time and travel required will cost one relationally and spiritually. Remember uh, a number of years ago, got to know uh, a good friend who now is good friend, uh, Isaac. Isaac grew up in China. He grew up business and making money. Isaac was good at that. And then Isaac's wife and son came here. The son came to study. She became a Christian and uh, began to share that with Isaac, and he saw the difference. Isaac ended up becoming a Christian as well. And the biggest change that took place in Isaac's life, he said, I saw the difference is that I needed to give priority to my family. And that meant I needed to have goals shifted in, in, in business. That's the tremendous. James would say, yes, there should be something distinctively Christian that happens when Jesus becomes the Lord of our life. Profit is no longer the ultimate goal. Well, instead of the uh, self-confident, profit-focused mindset expressed by the middle class in the earlier quote, James, in the verses 15 to 17, James calls for a humble, more qualified approach. His suggested preface is, if it is the Lord's will, notice it doesn't rule out planning or profits, but it sets these on a different foundation, right? On God's will, not my will. And, and it gives also a different focus. In his book, Lord of the Marketplace, Myron Rush tells the story of a, a real estate development company that he was in, that was interested in having him do some consulting work for them. And as they talked, one of the, uh, we're coming close to an agreement, one of the firm's employees said, just so you know, before we make a decision, we will have to discuss this with our senior partner, George Bunting. Mr. Bunting owns the controlling interest in our firm, and we wouldn't want to do anything without his uh, input and approval. And Myron said as he left the office that day, He was impacted by that phrase and thought about how God was his business partner, his senior business partner. Before we make decisions, big or small, we should ask for God's input and approval. I remember uh, a few years ago uh, watching Regent College. They put out a whole series called Reframe. And it was really helping people to connect their faith and their work together. It's a wonderful series. It's actually available free now online. But I want to show you in a moment, just want to show you a a clip from there. A number of years we have served coffee in our, uh, you know, in our welcome center from Level Ground. Level Ground is after a coffee company that runs out of Victoria. And uh, Hugo uh, was one of the founders of that. And he shares some of his journey into this business and into this calling. If you can play that, please. I clearly knew that I wanted to be a businessman, although having become a Christian, interestingly, my, my faith made me question, is being a businessman compatible with, with, being, with being a Christian? Ugo Siro is the CEO of Level Ground Trading, a direct fair trade company trading coffee, tea, and fruit from around the world. Originally from Colombia, he is now based in Victoria, Canada. There was a huge conflict in those days 
in my life. Having become a Christian at age 17, 18, and having this passion to serve God, but also as a result of coming from Colombia, uh, a sensitivity for the poor, a feeling that poverty really should be eradicated. It's, it's not a good thing. How can I be part of that? So all those things were, you know, I was struggling with all those things. How can I put together a life that allows me to be a good Christian in service using my education and my burning desire to be an entrepreneur? Huge conflict. How, how do you do that? How do you put all those together? Back in 1990, Ugo Siro couldn't see how his faith related to his gifting with business, his heart for the poor, and his passionate Colombian heritage. During this time, Ugo went to a seminar for Christian business people and suddenly realized that God created him with all sorts of gifts and talents, and all of this was part of God's purposes. To me, it was huge light bulbs going on, and it was a seminal moment. It was this, um, the fact that now I could use my gifts to serve Jesus. Number crunching? Uh, spreadsheets to serve Jesus? Absolutely. My vision of the Christian life became bigger. Ugo started up Level Ground with his two partners. Level Ground incorporated his vision for integrating business, social justice, and his Colombian roots. I feel that the whole of my life, my relationship with friends, family, church, uh, work, workmates, uh, it, it's, all, it's all one. There is no compartmentalization in my life anymore, like there once was. Brings tremendous freedom and joy. When God really is our senior business partner, we will want to live like that in all the business of life. James concludes chapter 4 and transitions to the next with, with a proverb that underlines the importance of, of applying a prayerful approach to our planning. Sometimes we think of sins as the wrong things that we do. James reminds us that leaving the right things we ought to do undone is also a sin. Right? And he applies it here. It's a broad principle, but he applies it here in this area of planning and partnering with God and having his priorities. Well, in chapter 5, James shifts his, soap, his focus from, you know, kind of the middle class to the super rich, the wealthy landowners. And it's doubtful that there were any Christian ones at this time. And we see in verse 4, it describes the workmen who mowed your fields, you know, the harvesters. These are the land barons. And there weren't that many of them, but they owned a lot of the land. And the day laborers were the ones that would do their fields. Well, these land barons were a class widely accused, uh, even in, in Roman literature, of economic exploitation and oppression from early times. 
And James speaks in prophet-like language. You can hear him sounding like Amos in the Old Testament or Isaiah. And James sharply and clearly announces God's verdict against them for crimes that cry out to the divine judge for justice. And the evidence that demands a verdict, a guilty verdict, is, is threefold. First, he will talk about their investment portfolio. And then their labor practices and then the murderous effect of their actions and also inactions. Well, let's look at their investment portfolio. See, like Jesus, James denounces the folly of hoarding earthly wealth. And he, does, and he, and he denounces it for at least two reasons. First, financial security is inherently insecure. I remember, uh, I can't remember which year it was, a number of years ago, there was a big crash in the stock market. And during the time we were going around, it was Halloween. And you know, they got all the pumpkins carved. And then there was a pumpkin like this. <laughs> you know, crash. Yeah. The uh, Proverbs 18 verse 11 says, The wealth of the rich, it's their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. Impenetrable. Now while the rich are foolish to think they can secure their present and future through hoarding wealth, the real crime that James calls them out on is the devastating effect their hoarding has on others. It prevents others who need access to it from getting access to any of it. Think about what's happening in, in the war in Ukraine. Grain, storehouses of grain in the Ukraine being kept from the people, mainly especially in Africa, but also in India, that need access to it or it will literally kill them. And James says, you know, you wasted your investments. And they will testify. They themselves will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's quite an image. Fire is often an image of judgment in the Bible. But he, he pictures this as if the very things that tarnish their silver and gold, you know, and uh, clothes were another thing and the moths eating that, that that will now eat into them like a fire of judgment, and maybe also remorse, guilt, when the social cost of their hoarding is entered into evidence in God's court. Reminded, if you've ever seen a Schindler's List, there's a, the scene near the end. The movie Schindler's List was from 1993, but it, it tells the true story of a businessman, Oscar Schindler, who arrived in Krakow in 1939, and he was actually ready to make his fortune off the war. And so after joining the Nazi party, for, mainly for convenience, he staffs his factory with Jewish workers for similar reasons. And when the government begins exterminating Jews in the Krakow ghetto... Schindler arrange, arranges to have his workers protected to keep his munitions factory in operation. But he soon realizes that in doing so, he is also saving innocent lives. And so he ends up bribing uh, Nazi officials, etc., to the point where he runs out of money in 1945, just as Germany is surrendering. 
and as a Nazi party member and a, and a profiteer off the war, he has to flee. But he, he stops first to bid farewell to his, his workers, over a thousand who have been saved from the death camps. And in the final scene, with the Schindler breaking down in tears, he's, he's feeling that he should have done more. He realizes he could have sold his car and saved ten more people. A gold pin that he had, he could have saved two more. And he says, I wasted so much money. You have no idea. I could have saved more. I think of that scene when, when James is talking. There's going to be a day when you realize you wasted so much that could have saved so many more. James also knows that their wealth was accumulated primarily through unjust labor practices. The wealthy land barons in that day often hired day laborers rather than keep slaves. Because that way they didn't have to worry about housing or feeding or caring for them. These laborers these had a, lived a hand-to-mouth existence. Today's wage bought tomorrow's breakfast. And when the wage was not paid at the end of the day, the whole family would literally go hungry. And if the worker complained, well, he or she was blacklisted, don't hire them, and then their job would be given to another because there were so many people in desperate need of, uh, in, uh, in poverty. And in worldly terms, then, the wealthy had all the power. The poor had none. But in the heavenly court, James says, the cries of the workers, they have not gone unheard. Justice will be done. And I think James is speaking largely to his poor and exploited readers to try to encourage them. And, you know, it's highly doubtful that there were any super rich in their churches. And he's saying the Lord Almighty guarantees a day of justice for the oppressed and for the oppressors. And to the inhumane crimes of hoarding, exploitation, injustice, and indulgence, James adds in verse 6, the net effect all of their actions and their inactions are having. Murder, he calls it. Murder. There, there is some debate over who the innocent one is that James says they have condemned and murdered. You know, is he referring to someone in particular like Jesus. Well, on the one hand, Jesus does take such actions against his people personally. As reminded in, uh, in Acts chapter 9, when Saul is confronted, Saul has been persecuting the church. And when Jesus uh, confronts him on the road to Damascus, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? No, actually, if you read it, it says, why are you persecuting me? He's persecuting Jesus, but I think Jesus is also taking it personally. These are my people, right? And in, in Matthew chapter 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, as you did or didn't do it to the least of these, you did or didn't do it to me, Jesus says, right? So there is something to that. 
On the other hand, it can also, one can also be used as a general, generic collective term. You know, the evil, the righteous, the poor. And this is probably how James is using it. They've condemned, that is, their innocent workers to death by their standards of living and by their business practices. I think of it as affluenza, not influenza, but affluenza, right? All of this wealth, and then also by their indifference. What else, James says, can they expect but to be judged by God for such behavior? Well, how do we make Jesus Lord of all the business of our lives? Uh, I want to draw out uh, at least two implications or applications. Uh, The first is James is encouraging us to pray, plan, and work as God's junior partners. As God's junior partners. We need to be prayerful and purposeful. The, The world is purposeful. Do we have God's purposes in mind? God wants us to be able to care for ourselves and for our families and to help those who, for a variety of reasons, cannot fully care for themselves. But I think mostly what James, I think, is getting us is to, is to shift from an ownership mentality. It's my money, my time, my resources. To really, we are stewards of God's time and God's resources. Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and some of the things in it. Well, no, it actually says, and everything in it. But we like to think, well, except my stuff, because I worked for that and all of that. God is the one who gives all of the ability to do all of these things. He wants us to be good stewards. And that means praying, planning, and working as his junior partners. And secondly, I think saving is good, hoarding is deadly. It's deadly for ourselves and for others. I think, what's the difference? I think saving money is usually done with a positive goal in mind. You know, some of you are saving money to go to college, saving money to to buy a house or to get a down payment that hopefully someday will work out towards some accommodations. Saving money to replace a roof uh, for retirement. Saving is necessary and wise. But hoarding, hoarding is an unhealthy obsession with the accumulation of financial reserves. It is especially trying to secure our future. Saving is frequently commended and and recommended in, in Scripture. Think of Joseph's role in Egypt in Genesis. Right? Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. Store up for the famine. Right? It's commended. Uh, the noble wife in Proverbs 21. Right? She, she doesn't need to fear the winter or the, or the difficult season because she's, she's worked and stored up for her family. And, and what Proverbs says, you know, go to the ants, you sluggard. You know, and observe their wisdom. They store up their food in summer so that they can make it through the winter. You know, and also in the New Testament, I remember coming across this verse years ago, and it's like, how did I ever miss that? Luke chapter 8, Luke 8 verse 3. 
In Luke 8, verse 3, we find there that there is this group of wealthy women. And they, it says, were helping to support them out of their own means. Who's them? Jesus and his disciples. They had financial backers. People who were supporting them as they were doing this itinerant ministry. And it's like, interesting, not only that they had financial supporters, it was the wealthy women who were supporting them in that. And so they were a part of the church. And yet, as we see, they weren't just using those resources for themselves, but for others. And God also calls us to practice regular giving. Financially. It says in the Bible there's a principle about first fruits giving because that's the way of saying to God, God, you are the owner of all of it. Okay? And thank you, God, for providing. And we give the first fruits, not the leftovers. And sometimes that requires greater amounts of faith than others. But we also need to practice regular giving of our time and our experience. You know, it may be, you say, well, I'm retired. You know, this business stuff, I was in it for a lot of years. Yeah, but maybe it's your experience. We had some people over to our place uh, just a couple weeks ago. And uh, one of the people uh, was, one of the ladies was sharing about how she had gone to uh, Dorothy's cooking group, learning to make meals from different people from around the different cultures. And there she met a retired teacher. Uh, and it was there, she said, that she was needing to get into the school system in, in the area of a, as a home ec teacher. And this retired teacher took her under her wing, encouraged her, helped her get some connections and, and doors opening. And she just couldn't speak highly enough. She says, I'm at this church because of, that, of those people. And it may be that God is, is calling you to do that. Uh, you know, maybe you've saved up your experience or whatever but to use that. And sometimes just keeping all of that experience to ourselves can be a form of hoarding as well, if you will, when there's opportunities that can be used to give and encourage and uh, to encourage the next generation. I want to invite the worship team to come up, and as they're coming, uh, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we find that uh, James really knows how to poke and to probe in all of the business of our lives. And yet, Lord, we also recognize that he does it not only for our own good, but for the good of others. Lord, so often in our world, the super-rich are those to emulate and aspire to. And we don't look at what is being harmed, even in our own small ways of hoarding. Lord, I pray that you would remind us that we are your junior partners. That you have uh, a will for us, whether it is like Hugo, actually going into business and using that to serve you and others or whether it is coming out of business and, and going into other forms of ministry, or leveraging some of our time in the midst of the week to encourage young people who are trying to get some experience or traction. 
Lord, I pray that you would give us your mindset, that we wouldn't just be like everyone else, but that you would help us to be faithfully different in all the business of life. For your honor and glory and for the good of ourselves, but also for the good of others. Amen.